0: Hello and welcome to the Free Movement Immigration Law Update podcast. This is Colin Yeo and I'm joined by my colleague CJ McKinney. Um, We are covering events in November 2020 and this is episode 83. We've got quite a lot of case law to cover and judgments from the Immigration Tribunal, the Court of Appeal and even the European Court of Human Rights. And we're going to talk about a potentially new important policy on deporting people who arrived in the uk as as young children. Um, something that's been provoking quite a lot of discussion on Twitter and things recently as well It's quite an interesting topic, but um it's not actually that much to say about it from a legal point of view as we'll see um we've got to cover some legal preparations for brexit and the new immigration Act 2020. If you'd like to claim CPD points for reading the material and listening to this podcast, then head over to freemovement.org.uk slash training and you can sign up as a member there. We've got over 100 CPD hours of training materials available to our members. Right, CJ, over to you to get started.
1: Thanks Colin. We'll begin with the new Immigration Act which passed into law on the 30th of November and it's pretty momentous but we haven't actually given it a huge amount of coverage on the website and that's for a couple of reasons. Uh, First of all it's quite short, uh, much much shorter than the 2014 and 2016 Immigration Acts. and secondly the things it does are really quite well known at this stage and in some ways have been on the cards ever since the Brexit vote in 2016. That is to say, it repeals the high level laws on EU free movements in preparation for Brexit Day proper on the 1st of January. So, Colin, I wanted to touch on the the Act's Henry VIII powers and the stuff to do with Irish citizens. But I wondered, first of all, if you had any thoughts on this kind of general stuff about ending a free movement. It's obviously a significant moment, even though it's been well trailed.
0: Short of wanting to burst into tears, not not really. No, I, I don't think that would help anybody at this point in time. And as as you said in your intro, and we we all knew this was coming. Um, it, it does sort of what we expected. The interesting thing, I think, as you've you've flagged up, is um, Irish citizens. But even that is only actually interesting to kind of immigration law geeks um, who who, are, who sort of follow these things because the um, the position of Irish citizens has been. A bit weirdly uncertain in immigration law for quite some time. They kind of seem to be sort of exempt from deportation, but not really. Um, they, they're exempt from immigration, immigration control if they enter in a certain way, but not if they enter otherwise, and so on. Um, so it's good to get some proper legal clarity on that. Um, but it's not actually something that was coming up in day-to-day practice anyway. And I say it's kind of it's one for the it's one for the geeks rather than for people who are actually sort of doing day-to-day um, immigration work.
1: Yeah I was really just going to say that the act really is quite a strong statement of Irish citizens rights uh, and it kind of puts that some of those discussions uh, to bed. Um so it's good for Irish people is my sort of main point on that but I suppose the Henry VIII powers in the act are maybe of interest and that's a reference to the act giving the government quite broad powers to change other acts of parliament that are connected with free movement and they're called Henry VIII powers after the monarch back in the day who apparently liked being unconstrained by Parliament. Uh, so Alex wrote up the Immigration Act for us, and he, he pointed out that ministers can use these Henry VIII powers whenever it's quote-unquote appropriate, uh, as opposed to necessary or some stricter test like that. So, I mean, potentially, uh, I don't know if you think this is a risk, but like, could we see some really nasty stuff put on the statute books or taken off the statute books with with minimal notice if these powers are sort of abused
0: i just don't know i think is the answer and i and i i know i, know I don't get that excited about stuff like henry the eighth powers it, it's kind of it's a really important constitutional law issue but basically i'm an immigration lawyer and i'm just not that sort of exercised by these things and yeah and the, the government has given itself huge and arguably unnecessary powers here um I, I sort of feel really naive for saying this and sort of imagine that it would be used for the purpose for which it's kind of vaguely yeah, sort of allocated. But, um, you know, it, it, it's not limited, particularly in that way. So, yeah, it could it could cause problems in the future, but we'll just have to kind of deal with that as and when it happens,
1: basically. That's fair enough. We won't get too stressed out about it in the meantime. There is enough to be stressed out about. Um, as well as the Immigration Act, there have been several sets of amendments to secondary legislation aimed at stripping out EU free movement rights from the detail of the immigration system, whereas the Act is kind of the the high-level laws. And there is an important one that we flagged on the website, Statute Instrument 2020 number 1309, laid before Parliament on the 18th of November, the title of which is so long, I'm not even going to attempt to read it out, Um, but it's 1309, 2020, and it, it does things like... Making employers of newly arrived EU citizens liable to pay the immigration skills charge brings EU citizens, uh, again, newly arrived EU citizens under the scope of the sham marriage uh, investigation scheme. So lots of sort of detailed changes that basically sort of bring EU citizens into the scope of immigration enforcement powers i suppose
0: yeah i think it's important so i think that's i'm not completely sure i've got this right but i think that's future entrant eu citizens so i think people who are already resident and apply under the um eu settlement scheme i don't think it applies to them um so it's people who arrive in future or who i guess are already here but don't apply under the eu settlement scheme even though they they should
1: Yeah, that's absolutely right, as far as I know from reading it, but it's worth practitioners having a handle on those regulations. Uh, Let's go to appeals, and there is a case about the president of the upper tribunal acting unlawfully, which is unusual, and this is in the context of temporary rules for handling immigration appeals during the pandemic. There was a presidential guidance note issued on that in March. And the gist of the guidance note, or at least the gist of the bit that people objected to, was it encouraged judges to make decisions about appeals on the papers, i.e., without a hearing, whether a remote hearing or a traditional in-person hearing. And Mr. Justice Fordham in the High Court basically found that the guidance created a presumption that cases should be decided on the papers, uh, which is unlawful for all sorts of reasons that he goes into in great detail um, but the upshot is the guidance has been withdrawn as of the 20th of November and that seems to mean that several hundred people can potentially look to have their case reopened if it was rejected on the papers and I say potentially I, I don't know exactly how clear-cut the exact consequences are uh, you might have some thoughts Colin but I'll give the case citation joint counsel for the welfare of Immigrants and the president of the Upper Tribunal Immigration Asylum Chamber, twenty twenty EWHC three one zero three admin.
0: Yeah, it's it's a it's a really funny development. This not funny, ha ha either. It's um, you know the the tribunal was warned about this and dismissed those warnings in really strong. And it turns out in hindsight, really unwise language, calling it manifestly wrong, complete misreading of the guidance note, misconceived, premature, you know, and and then have gone on to lose litigation. And it it reflects very poorly, in my view, on the ability of the upper tribunal leadership to... Engage with the practitioner, with the sort of practitioners, and with the sector. Um, it's just it just doesn't reflect well at all, and it's also it's just the the way that the Upper Tribunal was so happy apparently to surrender the idea of oral hearings. It feels like to me like another example of the tribunal not having any confidence in its own role or existence as a tribunal and just sort of considering itself to be fundamentally unimportant which is is just very unfortunate i think so um it's it's quite a quite sorry episode i think
1: yeah you've you've used that phrase before shirking not working when it comes to the tribunal and and this may be another example um i will say just as a rider that uh, JCWI, who uh, took the litigation and won it uh, they have set up a helpline for people whose appeal was dismissed on the papers uh, under this guidance between the 23rd of March and the 20th of November, uh, so that you can call and ask for advice, or if you're a legal representative in such a case, you can call JCWI 0207 553 7453. Human rights, then. There has been, as you mentioned at the outset, Colin, a little flurry of cases from the uh, European Court of Human Rights, and there are two in particular that we want to discuss. The first one is actually a finding against the UK government that it breached Article 8 of the Human Rights Convention in deporting a Nigerian man who was convicted for forging visa documents. And the meat of the finding seems to be that when the upper tribunal considered his deportation appeal here in the UK, it decided that he didn't have a case based on the domestic immigration rules at the time. And just sort of left it at that. It didn't carry out any independent assessment of whether there was a, a breach of Article Eight based on the Strasbourg Court's case law. And the new ruling is that basically the Upper Tribunal should have done that, uh, and indeed should have concluded that deportation was disproportionate based on his uh, right to family life. He had three kids in the UK, one of them quite sick. So that's uh, that case is called. Un-U-A-N-E, U N U A N E, and the United Kingdom application number 80343-17. Significant, Carl? Yeah,
0: it's, it's a really significant case, actually, and it's one that we're going to have to chew over for some time to come. Um, it's it's quite helpful, actually, for, for something I've been working on um, in the in the background. On um, I'm working on a textbook on immigration law, and we've been looking at the deportation chapter and trying to kind of reconcile the the wording of the statutory scheme with the nature of article 8 and they just don't seem to add up but we've seen repeated um jurisprudence in the uk which has kind of read down the language the statutory language so that it is vaguely compatible but there are still f- fundamental kind of differences of approach you know that the the uk statutory scheme clearly kind of segments article 8 private and family life and aspects of private and family life and deals with them separately rather than holistically and so on so this this is a really interesting case which sort of looks at those issues and the kind of um, reasoning that you see in Strasbourg cases is often a little hazy or non-existent because in its committee of judges it's difficult for them to um, all agree on something, and they they have to sort of find a way, which is often they agree on the result, but the the reasoning suffers, uh, should we say? Um, but essentially, what they what they're saying here is that the the UK statutory scheme doesn't necessarily offend against Article Eight; it's not necessarily incompatible with Article Eight. But it, uh, at the same time, that that sort of leads us to think that perhaps you know. Depending on how you read it, it can be incompatible with Article 8 as well. So it is a really interesting issue, it's a really interesting judgment, and it's a really important judgment as well. I I guess on on day to day practice, it's not going to have any impact on the way the Home Office deals with stuff. It might not have that much of an impact on the way that the first tier or or the upper tribunal deals with this stuff unless you're sort of quite careful in your your use of this kind of case and your advocacy um but i think it is a really important case for kind of trying to reconcile as far as it can be reconciled the, the the nature of article 8 with the uk statutory scheme
1: Okay, maybe of slightly more theoretical interest than I had first assumed, but we will see how the ramifications of that play out in future. There's another case then from Strasbourg that seem, also seems significant, and this time about Article 3 in human and degrading conditions rather than Article 8 on family life. And it is B and C and Switzerland, application number 83987-16 and 889-19. And Mr. B was a gay asylum seeker whose claim for asylum was rejected in Switzerland uh, a couple of times. Uh, I think he went around the system for a while and he was set for removal back to Gambia. But the Human Rights Court has found that the Swiss authorities hadn't done enough to work out what risk he would face as a gay man on return. So even though he didn't meet the criteria for asylum, or at least the, the Swiss felt he didn't, the Swiss government still had separate obligations under Article 3 to make sure he didn't suffer inhuman or degrading treatment if he was removed. And that, some commentators seem to be saying, is a bit of a landmark decision. And Colin, again, like what, what's the ramifications? Does this mean like asylum seekers get a second bite of the cherry? They can claim asylum and fall back on Article 3 as well?
0: Well, I don't think it really has any impact here in the UK, to be honest. To um, be sort of upfront about that, it's a reminder that Um, You know, the UK has often been at the forefront of refugee law protection jurisprudence, actually, and, and an awful lot better than other European countries. And this is a sort of reminder that the Swiss seem to be not dealing with these cases very well at all, should we say? Um, that's putting it putting it mildly. And essentially, it kind of just reinforces that the the HJ Iran approach, broadly speaking, which is all already reflected in EU law as well, um, is also applicable to ECHR law and to, to Article Three. So, I don't think it really changes all that much um i'm not quite sure how it came up actually thinking about it as an article three case anyway rather than as a sort of refugee law case but um you know it, it's it, it's good news for all that but it, it it's not that surprising and um somebody in this situation in the uk would have succeeded on refugee grounds anyway so wouldn't have particularly needed to fall back on on article three
1: okay that's useful clarification and uh Brings me down to earth with my getting carried away about these cases. Uh, Let's turn then to deportation. And as you said, there has been this deportation charter flight to Jamaica that took place on the 2nd of December. A lot of campaigning around that, a lot of opposition to it. And in response, the Home Office has uh, reportedly, and we stress reportedly, uh, given a promise to the authorities in Jamaica that it won't deport anyone who arrived in the UK as a child aged under 12. Now, this promise has not been officially confirmed by the Home Office, but it has been reported by uh, Diane Taylor, the Guardian, who had it from the Jamaican High Commissioner. So that's a pretty reliable source. But I suppose, as you said, the website call, we don't know if this is literally a one-off in response to media pressure on this one flight. Maybe it only applies to Jamaican Nationals, maybe only windrush type cases we we don't really know how extensive um it is assuming that it exists but nevertheless i mean potentially it's quite promising because obviously people routinely are deported uh even if they've grown up in the uk
0: yeah yeah and um I mean, the 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 original source I noticed um Jackie McKenzie um tweeting about this a few days before before it was picked up in the mainstream media. Jackie is is just at the forefront of this stuff. She she's a brilliant lawyer and she's well worth well worth following. Um it is good news. I mean, we we don't it's it's very it all it's all very sketchy. It it's being billed just as an agreement um between the UK and Jamaica. It might literally just be limited to that particular flight for all we know and not be a, a sort of general policy on Jamaica, never mind even even wider than that. But it, it's I think it's an important sign that, you know, there are some victories to be won on deportation and you know the idea that we can and should deport people who came to the uk as small children and and for whom the uk is is their home you know they're they're basically british in every sense except under nationality law all the important ways that they're, they're, they're british and there are responsibility as well you know if they've if they've ended up committing crimes it's because of you know our society and and the way that they've been treated here um so yeah it's it's, it's sort of promising but um but it, it's not Yeah, it's not very extensive at the moment. It might be the start of something, but but it might not be as well, I suppose.
1: Let's do a couple of court cases on deportation. The Court of Appeal has been quite busy. And first up, there was a challenge to deportation based on what's called legitimate expectation. And legitimate expectation is a public law rule that basically says if the government promises you something, they can't go back on their words as a matter of fairness and good governance and what have you and uh, in this case uh, the chap concerned said that he was he was settling a claim for un- unlawful detention and he was told in the course of this by a fairly junior home office official uh, gave him a verbal uh, indication that his deportation case was closed and the reality was that it was only really on hold while this unlawful detention case was settled, and the Home Office eventually made a fresh deportation order against him. And he uh, challenged this, and the Court of Appeal held that because the Home Secretary is under a legal duty to deport foreign national offenders, it would take a very specific promise not to deport someone to give rise to a legitimate expectation, and what, that what was said by this junior official didn't qualify. So. Legitimate, legitimate expectations is a pretty difficult hand to play in the context of criminal deportation is uh what i took away from that case and it is called emiantor 2020 ewca civ 1461
0: yeah don't trust the home office don't trust the home office um, and a big shout out to gordon lee who, who took this um, pro bono by the looks of things as well for advocate the um, pro bono bar organization
1: Let's do our other deportation case. Uh, This one is about can the government have a second go at deporting someone if they have successfully appealed against deportation in the past? Uh, It sometimes happens that the Home Office will realise that the toughening of deportation legislation means that it can apply new laws to people they couldn't deport in the past, even if that person hasn't re-offended since they've they've led a blameless life uh, for many years. Uh, and the Court of Appeal previously said that the Home Office was perfectly entitled to do that. Um, There was a case last year called MA Pakistan, along those lines, uh, and that's been reaffirmed now in the case of Abidoye 2020 Civ 1425. So there's that point, and there's also a bit that lawyers might need to be aware of. Um, Abidoye was a judicial review, and the Court of Appeal sort of took the opportunity to warn about using judicial review to challenge deportation by the back door when there's a dedicated system of of, uh, tribunal appeals against deportation and really some quite strong words colin really sort of trying to warn people off this kind of litigation i guess
0: yeah yeah It, it it looks like they're trying to put people off um so think carefully before before bringing these kind of proceedings i'd say
1: Finally, then, on this area, uh, immigration detention, there have been a few changes to home office policy when it comes to finding government accommodation for detainees, where the only reason they're not being let out on bail is that they have nowhere to stay. And uh, we mentioned on the podcast uh, recently enough the case of Humnyanitsky, which found that the bail accommodation system is very, very unlawful. And now there have been a few policy changes, um, but they're quite minor and they don't really address the substance of that ruling. So it may be of some assistance to clients who are trying to get accommodation, but we think it may be just a holding measure pending a more thorough review of the the bail accommodation policy. Uh, The document is called Immigration Bail Interim Guidance, uh, dated 30th of October 2020. Asylum, uh, and there's another big case from the High Court, also to do with uh, arrangements during the pandemic. Uh, The Home Office has been struggling to process asylum claims because of social distancing and staff shortages and and general chaos and perhaps its own inefficiency. Uh, We should mention that as well. Um, But what they did was shorten the initial screening interview uh, by removing some of the standard questions and that obviously with a view to speeding up the, the whole process. The problem was that two of the questions they cut out were designed to pick up on indications of human trafficking. Uh, these questions were, why have you come to the UK and please outline your journey to the UK? And that gives people a chance to say things that might show that they've been trafficked. And Mr. Justice Fordham, again, has ordered that these questions be reinstated in the screening interview, although just as a holding measure, what lawyers call interim relief. Uh, and there will be a full hearing on the lawfulness of the... Uh, removing these questions on the 16th and 17th of december Uh, but in the meantime those uh, questions aimed at picking up trafficking should be asked in the screening interview and the interim relief judgment da and others 2020 ewhc 3080 admin and another interesting asylum case this time for the upper tribunal people with a non-binary gender identity can claim asylum in the uk Non-binary people basically don't identify as male or female. Uh, They may prefer to be referred to not as Mr. or Miss, but Mix, M-X. And the upper tribunal stresses the importance of using the correct terminology in in dealing with such cases. And it also found that non-binary people can constitute a particular social group, which is an important uh, concept in refugee law. Uh, Obviously, whether someone who's non-binary gets asylum depends on the facts in the country and and their experiences are they being persecuted so it's not that you automatically get asylum just because you're non-binary uh but it's still a sort of important statement to principle i suppose and maybe useful for similar cases where people who are gender non-conforming are uh, claiming asylum uh the case citation mix m gender identity hd iran terminology el salvador 2020 uk ut 313 iac
0: yeah, it's a good welcome, respectful determination. This one, but absolutely shocking uh, when you read through it to see how it was handled lower down in the tribunal system. Um, so there's still, you know, there's still quite a lot of work to do on some of these issues. I just HJ ran completely ignored um, when it when it obviously was was highly relevant, um, and an actual finding of perversity on on some of the evidential findings by the first tier as well, which is is very unusual. Um, interestingly the first tier tribunal judges um, not named and shamed Um, that's usually the case in my experience where you've got very critical findings in the upper tribunal um, but does contrast somewhat with um, the the treatment of immigration lawyers. I have to say.
1: Yeah I think we have noticed some they're inconsistent on naming and shaming judges sometimes they are quite uh, soft on their colleagues certainly I've noticed that but however they, they get away with it this time. Uh, we have a couple of cases on technical procedural issues. Uh, the first is to do with at what point an immigration application is decided. So in this case, a Mr. Topadar had applied for a Tier 2 work visa. It was refused. He asked for an internal administrative review, administrative review of the refusal, and while that review was pending, he tried to vary his application from a work visa application to a human rights-based application. And that would only be possible if the visa application was still pending and his argument was, well, it was still live because the administrative review was ongoing. Uh, The Court of Appeal said, no, an application is decided once the first decision to grant or refuse is made and the administrative review doesn't count. So no variation is allowed uh, at that point. And then there was a second point in that case, which was about, if the Home Office asks the visa sponsor or the applicant's sponsor for information that it needs as part of the application and the sponsor doesn't reply, is it procedurally unfair to refuse the application without contacting the applicant, the person being sponsored? And again, the answer is no. So no joy for Mr. Topadar in that one, 2020 EWCA Civ 1525
0: Yeah, I feel like he was pretty unlucky. Um, The judges had to work quite hard to distinguish the um, Pathan case, and I'm not sure that it really should have been distinguished myself, but um, there you go.
1: Then another court of appeal case on decision letters, and the question here was what happens if someone claims not to have received a letter cancelling their visa? Is it enough for the Home Office to send a letter and assume it's been received, or does it have to really confirm that the person is aware of its decision so last year the high court in a case called roman uh, it was held that there is a presumption that someone has received a letter if it's sent to the right address but the person concerned can rebut that presumption by showing that in fact they weren't aware of the letter uh, and as well that they acted in good faith they didn't nail up their letterbox or whatever to make sure they didn't get the letter but now the Court of Appeal has overruled that high court finding Roman and said that if you're going to rebut this presumption that the letter has been served... What you have to prove is that the letter was intercepted or was never sent, not merely that you weren't aware of the contents of the letter. Uh, so, basically, something that seems to make the Home Office's life easier and challenges based on incomplete service of decisions uh, a bit harder. Uh, the case name Alam and Sec- Secretary of State for the Home Department 2020 WCA Civ 1527.
0: Yeah, a bit of a struggle to imagine how you can prove that a letter was intercepted that you didn't receive. Um, There
1: you go. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Getting towards the end, there's a case from Northern Ireland on false documents, and this involves the former president of the Immigration Tribunal, Bernard McCluskey, who is now a Lord Justice of Appeal in Belfast, and he's written a judgment disagreeing with the equivalent court of appeal in England and Wales in its approach to false documents. Uh, So maybe only directly relevant to practitioners in Northern Ireland, but interesting. So the context is, if there is an allegation that visa documents have been forged, uh, the position in England, as expressed in the case of Hamid, is that a false document is itself dishonest, and that fact avoids the need to establish dishonesty or deception on the part of an applicant. And what uh, Lord Justice McCluskey and his colleagues in Northern Ireland say is that that approach is wrong, and in fact, what the Home Office needs to do is actually establish that someone somewhere has been dishonest uh, if it's going to apply these rules on false documents. So it's not enough just to show that the document itself is, is for it. So an interesting divergence, the case LLD and Secretary of State for the Home Depart- Department 2020 NICA 38.
0: Yeah, it, it's McCloskey's sort of got a reputation for um very thoughtful, considered, um, but but ultimately slightly out there um decisions and, and this feels like one of them. And you see his point that how can a document have the mens rea that's necessary to be dishonest um when it's an inanimate object? <laughs> um so yeah it's all a bit interesting but i don't know whether that actually is any use to us at all in england and wales um given that i think we're sort of bound by the court of appeal I, I imagine that there might be some further litigation on this kind of issue if it comes up but um it's not immediately obvious how you'd how you'd use this as given it's a northern ireland authority
1: finally then we haven't talked about the points-based immigration system at all because we spent loads of time on it in the last episode. But we do have a quick note on changes to the student rules that took effect on the 1st of December. Uh, And in particular, we wanted to flag that the short-term student route has been changed. And previously, this was the visa you needed if you wanted to study in the UK for up to six months or to take an English language course specifically for up to 11 months now you can study for up to six months on a visit visa so the short-term student route is only for english language courses lasting longer than six months but no more than 11 months and that is all from me
0: yeah and that's a a nice you know vaguely positive admittedly quite limited but but positive note to end on so i hope that was useful to you all and we'll be back next month goodbye